Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1966, a rather infamous Time magazine cover was published featuring the question, Is God Dead? At the time, it probably seemed like a pretty good question to ask. The 1960s were a period of rapid change for the world. The seemingly puritanical 1950s had given way to a new world of rebellion among young people, who were becoming increasingly disillusioned with the status quo. Everywhere you looked, there were stories about free love, free drugs, and hippies openly protesting in the streets. The Vietnam War was raging. Great American leaders like John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King were being assassinated. People were now actively questioning authority in a way that was rarely ever seen before. And amid all this turmoil, there grew a new occult revolution. One that led some people to discover a newfound interest in the devil himself. I'm Nate Hale, and I have a hell of a story to tell you. And this is The Conspirators. Our modern concept of the devil with the goat legs, corns, and pitchfork has changed quite a bit from where it began centuries ago. One of the most famous early depictions of the devil comes from John Milton's 1667 epic poem, Paradise Lost, in which he describes Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels in his fall from grace. To create his own version of the devil, Milton relied heavily on the concept of Satan that had already been brewing throughout the Middle Ages and early Renaissance. In this iteration, the devil was portrayed as the ultimate adversary of God, the tempter of sinners, and the all-powerful demon who turned people to witchcraft. This has more or less remained the concept of the devil we have today, but the true origins of the devil predate even the Bible. For starters, you need to understand that the devil as a concept is a kind of patchwork quilt of a lot of different ideas. Numerous religions contained their own legends that would become interwoven with the overarching Christian concept of Satan. In fact, the Christian Bible only contains a few passages about the devil and never describes his appearance. In Genesis, the serpent who tempts Eve is often associated with Satan, but some theologians think that even this might be a misreading of the texts. The Old Testament refers to Satan more as an adversary rather than God's opposite number. It's only by the time you get to the book of Revelation in the New Testament that Satan is referred to as an apocalyptic beast. Now, beast is a rather relative term. Early depictions of the devil depict him not as some horrific monster, but rather as a fallen angel. There's a 6th century mosaic in the Basilica of St. Apollinaire Nuovo in Ravenna, Italy, that depicts Satan as an ethereal blue angel floating to one side of Jesus. The devil's image as a goat-footed monster wouldn't come about until centuries later, as the Catholic Church grew in influence throughout Europe. 
Over time, church leaders began realizing that a good way to bring people under their control would be by turning the devil into a sort of boogeyman and began depicting him as a terrifying creature who was always out there tempting you into his arms. One of the early legends that was used to create the Catholic concept of the devil comes from ancient Babylonian texts about winged female demons named Lalitu, who spent their nights seducing men and attacking pregnant women and infants. These creatures would evolve throughout the Jewish texts into descriptions of Adam's first wife, Lilith, who came to embody lust, rebellion, and ungodliness. There was also another ancient Canaanite entity named Beelzebub, whose story became part of what we think of today as the devil. In the Old Testament, Beelzebub's name roughly translates to the Lord of the Flies. And according to early scripture, it actually started out merely as a false idol that the Hebrews were ordered to shun, not some all-powerful demon. It was from the ancient Romans where we get a lot of our current image of the devil. As early Christians began to reject the pagan gods of Rome, the story of the trickster god Pan would get woven into our concept of the devil. From there, we can see Pan's cloven hooves and goat horns becoming synonymous with our belief in what the devil actually looked like. Artistic license would continue to evolve the devil into the common image we all have today. Artists continued to add additional scary details such as bat wings and a pointed tail. The devil's color would evolve too. Although early medieval paintings would show him in a multitude of dark colors, eventually artists began painting him red, and so that became the color we most commonly associate with him today. As the image of Satan continued to evolve, the Catholic Church continued issuing warnings about the dangers of consorting with the devil, and those same proclamations would be used time and again in the witch trials that occurred throughout the Middle Ages. By the Middle Ages, it was widely believed that not only was Satan out there trying to tempt you into his embrace, but you could also actively worship him and even sell your soul to him. Today we know the witch trials were, by and large, just one more way that people were kept in line throughout the Middle Ages. In particular, they were a convenient way to keep women in their place in a largely male-run society. But back then it came to be widely believed there were covens of witches all throughout Europe attempting to destroy polite society by summoning the devil. A lot of early legends of devil worship can be traced back to a religious sect called the Gnostics. The term Gnostics is actually a pretty broad title given to a number of groups who broke with traditional Christian teachings in some key waves. When researching the Gnostics, you'll often come across some of the more well-known sects, such as the Cathars. But just to keep it short, understand that the Catholic Church tended to lump all these various sects together and claimed they were all heretics. Knowing this, you have to understand that much of the reporting we have today about just what the Gnostics believed also comes directly from the Catholic Church, who had a vested interest in ensuring their authority was not questioned by anyone. For example, it's from the Catholics that we get the earliest descriptions of what came to be known as the Black Mass, a twisted version of the Catholic Rite that the Church claimed was at the center of Satanic worship. The Church also claimed that human sacrifice especially the sacrifice of infants, was performed during some of these black masses. Today, most modern historians tend to view these accusations skeptically and see them as an attempt by the church to drum up religious hysteria. It was actually a direct result of such heretical groups forming and the threat they posed to traditional Catholic teachings that the church would create their own formal system of inquisition in which those found guilty would be executed by burning them at the stake. 
It's through this lens that we have to understand that a lot of the stories we have about devil worship are actually nothing more than rumor and hysteria. It's a concept that has largely been formed by pop culture and by people with an active interest in promoting the idea. But life, as they say, imitates art. Although a lot of stories about satanic cults have proven to be completely fictional. As within many stories, there can also be found a devilish grain of truth. In the 13th century, a group known as the Luciferians attracted notoriety within the Catholic Church for their belief that the angel Lucifer and his host of demons had been unfairly expelled from heaven. The Luciferians were greatly influenced by Gnosticism, and they believed that one day Lucifer would rise up and seize control of heaven. In the meantime, Lucifer's worshippers here on earth would do everything they could to reject Christianity and offend God at every turn. It was widely believed they would do this by performing rituals that involved things such as kissing toads or black cats, all the way up to engaging in full-blown orgies and sacrificing the babies born from those unions. Now, like I said, a lot of these stories have to be viewed skeptically, considering that many of them come from prisoners of the Inquisition. Most of those confessions were obtained through torture, and it's very likely many of those prisoners would have confessed to pretty much anything their torturers wanted them to say. In the early 14th century, the King of France, Philip the Fair, accused a well-known religious order, the Knights Templar, of being devil worshippers. The Knights Templar had been around since the First Crusade, and were originally tasked with protecting people on their way to the Holy Land. As a result, until these accusations blew up around them, they had been considered beyond reproach by the Catholic Church. But King Philip's accusations carried serious weight and could not be easily ignored. The Knights Templar were accused, among other things, of committing acts of heresy, sodomy, and of worshipping false idols, namely that of an entity known as Baphomet, a multi-headed creature whose name would forever after become synonymous with Satan. In fact, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to show that the Templars worship Baphomet at all. But you see, along with being very secretive, the Knights Templar were also very wealthy. And throughout their crusades, they had collected a large amount of treasure and other pagan artifacts. It's likely the Inquisitors simply discovered some idols depicting Baphomet that the Templars had stored away, and used that as evidence against them. It's also widely believed today that King Philip's accusations came about primarily because he found himself in some dire financial straits. And by falsely accusing the Knights Templar of satanic worship, he could then arrange for the Templars to be stripped of their wealth and have it all redistributed between himself and the church. Even though the members of the Knights Templar were tortured into confessing that they worship Satan, they would all later recant their confessions before being burned at the stake. Over the centuries that followed, there would be several other groups that purportedly worshipped Satan. Throughout the early part of the 20th century, the occultist Aleister Crowley became notorious for his black magic rituals and for his sex magic religion of Thelema. The story of Aleister Crowley is one I'll save for another day. But someone I would like to tell you about is the man most often credited with bringing satanic worship into the mainstream during the 1960s. He was a high school dropout and former circus performer named Anton LaVey, who went on to form the Church of Satan. He was born Howard Stanton LaVey on April 11, 1930 in Chicago, Illinois. He attended Tamil Pei High School in Mill Valley, California before dropping out at age 16. 
After leaving high school, LaVey did what sounds like an old-timey kid's fantasy and actually ran off and joined the circus. LaVey bounced around working at a number of carnivals and circuses as a roustabout and cage boy for big cats. He would later claim that it was his annoyance at the hypocrisy of seeing the same men who showed up on Saturday night to the body burlesque shows, then attended church the following morning that formed his cynical view of religion. Throughout his life, LaVey was a consummate showman with a flair for the dramatic. So we have to take a lot of what he claimed about himself with a grain of salt. For example, he claimed to have once had a brief fling with a then young and unknown Marilyn Monroe while she was a dancer at L.A.'s Mayan Theater. People who knew Marilyn personally denied that the affair ever happened and that Marilyn never even danced at that theater. LaVey also claimed to have worked for three years as a photographer for the San Francisco Police Department as well as a psychic investigator. It was while he was working as an organist at local bars and nightclubs that he began to rub elbows with a lot of well-known names in the counterculture movement, as well as a bunch of writers who specialized in writing horror and fantasy fiction. People like Kenneth Anger, Forrest J. Ackerman, and Fritz Lieber, to name a few. It was around this time that LaVey began to weave together several threads he picked up from the disparate group of fantasy writers and people bucking the system into the new religion he created. LaVey began giving Friday night lectures on magic and mysticism, and from there he began to reshape his image into that of a modern master of the occult. According to LaVey, on April 30, 1966, he performed a magic ritual and shaved his head in honor of Walpurgis Night. This was an ancient pagan holiday that dated back to 6th century Germany, and was supposed to be the last day demons and witches were able to wreak havoc on the mortal world before the spring thaw began. Of course, one other less mystical version of the story also claims that the real reason LaVey shaved his head was on a dare from his wife. In either instance, it was LaVey's bald head and very Luciferian goatee that would form the rather sinister image of him most people have today. Over time, LaVey began to cobble together a philosophy that was part Ayn Rand, part Friedrich Nietzsche, part Weird Tales magazine. In fact, some parts of his satanic Bible were stolen word for word from an 1896 racist screed titled Might is Right, written by someone under the pseudonym Ragnar Redbeard. Keep in mind, LaVey himself wasn't particularly racist. He was born into a Jewish family, after all, and he'd seen firsthand the consequences of intolerance. But under the religion he was crafting, he also didn't have any compunction about stealing the parts he liked from whatever source fit his beliefs. He set up shop in a home in San Francisco, which famously came to be known as the Black House. And on June 6th, 1966, 6666, get it? He officially launched the Church of Satan. Right from the beginning, Anton LaVey was a flagrant self-promoter and would often make appearances on the talk show circuit or find other ways to get himself into the spotlight in order to spread the word about his church. The Church of Satan became a moderate hit back then and for a time he attracted the attention of a number of celebrities such as Sammy Davis Jr., who actually became a warlock in the church. LaVey continued to declare himself as the local expert on all things occult-related, and he claimed to have been hired as a consultant on a lot of the satanic-themed horror films of the late 60s and early 70s, including Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. Although like a lot of LaVey's life story, these are things that are sometimes difficult to corroborate. Another notable celebrity often associated with the Satanic Church back then was the actress Jane Mansfield. During the 1950s and 1960s, Hollywood studios were desperate to find another starlet who could rival the number one box office draw Marilyn Monroe. 
For a while, many studios thought that Jane Mansfield might be that person. Mansfield was an early Playboy playmate, and she established herself as a Hollywood bombshell in roles in movies like The Girl Can't Help It. But by the late 1960s, her celebrity was fading fast, and movie producers were no longer so keen on finding Marilyn Monroe's successor. By then, Jane Mansfield had been married and divorced three times and had five children. In fact, one of those children is actress Mariska Hargitay, who herself became famous for starring in the Law & Order TV shows. By 1966, when she met Anton LaVey, Mansfield's acting career had pretty much been reduced to making appearances at grocery stores and doing regional dinner theater. Despite her dumb blonde image, Mansfield was actually quite brilliant. She was well-educated, spoke multiple languages, and reportedly had an IQ of 163. So the story goes that Mansfield met Anton LaVey after making a notorious appearance at the San Francisco Film Festival, during which she wore what was considered to be a scandalous pink dress that left little to the imagination. Supposedly, Mansfield left the film festival early and made an unannounced appearance at a party being thrown at LaVey's black house. The pair became fast friends after that, and although it's never been proven, some rumors have suggested their friendship wasn't strictly platonic. In either case, LaVey would go on to anoint Mansfield as a high priestess of the church. Someone who didn't approve of Jane Mansfield's relationship with LaVey's Church of Satan was her boyfriend, attorney Sam Brody. Brody was reportedly a jealous and abusive man who wasn't afraid to show his disdain for LaVey by openly mocking his beliefs. If we were to believe the legends, this so angered LaVey that he jealously cursed the pair, which brought about tragic results. On November 23, 1966, Mansfield took her family to the Jungle Land Zoo in Thousand Oaks, California. What started as a fun family outing turned into a living nightmare when a lion attacked her six-year-old son, Zoltan. The little boy was rushed to the hospital and underwent three surgeries to save his life. Mansfield immediately called her friend Anton, asking for help. Anton LaVey performed a satanic prayer to save the boy's life. Afterwards, the little boy made a rapid recovery which Mansfield attributed to LaVey's magic. But after that, tensions between LaVey and Sam Brody only grew. Things became so heated between them that LaVey allegedly placed a death curse on Brody. A few months later, on June 29, 1967, Mansfield and Brody were traveling to New Orleans with driver Ronnie Harrison and three of Mansfield's children. Sometime around 2 a.m., Harrison got into a deadly collision with the back of a tractor trailer. All three adults died in the accident, while the three children received only minor injuries. By the way, contrary to popular belief, Jane Mansfield was not actually decapitated in that crash. That was an urban legend that sprung out of misreporting about the substantial head injuries she actually sustained. But did Anton LaVey have any real magic powers? And did his curse cause the fatal crash to occur? Well, for one thing, if LaVey was truly smitten with Jane Mansfield, as was commonly believed then there doesn't appear to be a great reason for him to want her dead as well as Brody. If you ask the leaders of the Church of Satan today, they'd say the idea that LaVey could have cast a curse on them was complete nonsense. One curious fact about the Church of Satan is that they don't actually worship Satan as we know it. The Church, as Anton LaVey created it, was an atheistic organization, and they don't actually believe in either God or Satan as physical beings. In fact, the central focus of the church's philosophy is one where you live by your own moral code devoid of belief in a higher power, and that you seek personal pleasure wherever you can find it. 
but the church does have its limits. It condemns the practices of both human and animal sacrifice. And in particular, if you in any way harm children, you'll be instantly banned from the church for life. Court of the Satanic Church's beliefs is that you should seek as much personal pleasure and satisfaction as you can get, just as long as you don't harm others in obtaining it. Although the Church of Satan exploded in popularity in a relatively short time in the mid-1960s, its notoriety would quickly be overshadowed in 1969 by another infamous group, the Manson family. Interestingly, one of the members of Charles Manson's family, Susan Atkins, actually danced nude at a party held at LaVey's Black House in 1967. Other than that, though, there doesn't appear to be much evidence the Manson family had any real connection to the Church of Satan. As the 1970s wore on, the Christian community began to fight back and rebuke the rise of Satanism they saw gaining strength all around them. Members of LaVey's church began to leave in droves throughout the 1970s, when he began hitting them up for contributions to keep them afloat. At that time, other satanic offshoots sprung out of the church, including the Church of Set run by a man named Michael Aquino, who LaVey disavowed when Aquino's group began going directly against his core beliefs and worshipping the actual devil. The Black House fell into disrepair, and by the time LaVey died in 1997, the Church of Satan had moved its headquarters to New York and had come under new management, including High Priest Peter Gilmore, who still runs the church today. By the 1980s and early 90s, Public paranoia about satanic cults had grown to almost epic proportions. This is what is commonly referred to as the satanic panic. I won't get into all the details here because the satanic panic is well worth its own show. But back then, there was a widespread belief that satanists had infiltrated all walks of life and that they were actively trying to seduce and even sacrifice America's young people. Much of the satanic panic really stems from the publication in 1980 of a notorious memoir named Michelle Remembers. This was a book written by a Canadian psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder, and his psychiatric patient, Michelle Smith. In the book, Michelle Smith recounted the numerous repressed memories she had that Dr. Pazder drew out of her using hypnotic regression. It was during these sessions that she allegedly recalled horrific experiences she endured growing up as the plaything of a satanic cult. The book paints a terrifying picture of Smith as a young girl being handed over to this satanic cult by her mother, and of her harrowing sexual abuse at their hands. Years later, other people who looked into the stories Michelle remembered were able to debunk pretty much everything she claimed. It was also publicly revealed that Dr. Pazder actually married Michelle Smith and went on the paid lecture circuit with her, further damaging their credibility. But it was books like Michelle Remembers and news specials like the famous one hosted by Geraldo Rivera about Satanism that helped cement the idea in the public's minds that satanic cults were a major threat to polite society, all of which set the stage for a series of horrific murders tied to Satanism that occurred in rural Georgia in a place rather descriptively known as Corpsewood Manor. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we continue, I want to take a moment to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. 
If you're a fan of The Conspirators, then you probably enjoy true crime stories that shine a light in the darkest corners of humankind. If you peel back the curtain and look at all the petty criminals out there, there's often someone bigger lurking in the shadows controlling them. In Kingpins, a new podcast from Parcast, they take a deep dive into the minds and stories of the men and women who call the shots and rule the criminal underworld. Each episode of Kingpins goes deep inside the ranks of organized crime rings. From street gangs to mafiosos, to expose what it takes for a kingpin or queenpin to rise to the top of the underworld, and why they eventually fall. Using extensive research, Kingpins analyzes a leader of a crime syndicate and profiles the outrageous people and skewed relationships behind organized crime. You can hear episodes on Frank Lucas and Richard the Iceman Kuklinski right now. Look for upcoming episodes on Pablo Escobar, Freeway Rick Ross, and Queenie St. Clair. New episodes come out every Friday. Search for Kingpins wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or visit parcast.com slash kingpins to start listening today. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash kingpins. And now, back to my show. In 1976, Dr. Charles Scudder was an associate professor of psychopharmacology at Loyola University in Chicago. He'd been married to a woman and had four children. But upon his 50th birthday, he came out as gay and decided to leave the rat race, academia, and his family behind. He and his partner, a man named Joseph Odom, decided to leave the hustle and bustle of the big city and bought 40 acres of cheap land in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. There they lived for a time in a trailer while they built their dream home. A large, gothic brick mansion Dr. Scudder rather evocatively named Corpsewood Manor, after the large number of dead trees surrounding the land where it was built. Something to know about Dr. Sutter right off the bat is that he was an avowed Satanist. But he was also, more specifically, a Levian Satanist. Meaning he was heavily atheistic and devoted to the church's hedonistic lifestyle. Anton LaVey even once sent him a birthday card. Corpsewood Manor was built completely off the grid. There was no electricity and no running water. They used a chemical toilet and they grew their own food in the gardens. They even made and sold their own wine from their personal vineyards. Next to their castle, they built a smaller structure they called their chicken coop, which is where they entertained guests. Dr. Scudder filled his castle from top to bottom with satanic art and other pagan decorations. Many of the pieces of satanic decor he purchased from a liquidation sale of a Chicago theater. There were four chimneys, each decorated with an inverted pentagram. There were numerous paintings and sculptures related to Satanism throughout the house. Perhaps the most famous piece in his collection was a large black and gold statue of Mephistopheles. Dr. Scudder and Joseph Odom were considered nice, but eccentric to those who knew them. Scudder was quite intelligent and well-spoken. But since this was rural Georgia in the late 1970s, and there were a couple of gay Satanists, there were always going to be some people who would reject them outright no matter what. Occasionally, hunters would wander onto their land and ask if they could shoot there. Dr. Scudder was typically accommodating to them, and would sometimes invite visitors into his home and offer them glasses of his homemade wine. Occasionally, guests would stay and listen to him strum in his harp or recite poetry. Before leaving his job in Chicago, Scudder had also taken with him a quantity of LSD he'd lifted from the school's labs. A couple of his guests were a pair of hunters named Avery Brock and Tony West. Brock became a regular guest at Corpsewood Manor, and it's sometimes been suggested that he may have taken part in sexual activities with the men. Brock was impressed with the mansion and with Dr. Scudder's extensive, albeit weird, art collection. 
He became convinced the professor had to be a millionaire in order to afford everything. In truth, although Scudder had received a small trust fund from his deceased father's estate, almost every cent he had was poured into the mansion's construction. But Avery Brock didn't know that. He went back and told his roommate all about the rich, queer devil worshippers, as he described them, he'd met out in the woods. It didn't take long before the pair began contemplating how easy it would be to rob the doctor and his live-in companion. That far off the grid, with no electricity or telephone, there'd be no way for them to call for help. On the night of December 12, 1982, a local teenager named Teresa Hudgens was expecting to go out on a date with her new boyfriend, Joey Wells. She was surprised when Wells showed up in the company of his two friends, Avery Brock and Tony West. Teresa was a little nervous at first. But Brock and West told her they were all going to a party with some friends of his who lived out in the woods. There, they'd all drink wine and get high in a homemade concoction of alcohol, paint thinner, and glue he called Toodaloo. Teresa and Joey knew that Brock and West were hunters, so neither one of them thought much about the twenty-two caliber rifle they brought with them lying in the front seat. After they arrived at the estate, Dr. Scudder greeted them warmly and invited them upstairs in the chicken coop to the pink room. There they drank wine and some of them huffed the Toodaloo concoction. They spent several hours getting high before Brock excused himself to head back to his car, ostensibly to mix up more Toodaloo. But when he returned, he had his rifle with him. When Scudder saw the gun, he giggled nervously and said, Bang, bang. That's when Brock passed the rifle to Odom, then took out his hunting knife and held it to Scudder's throat and demanded that he hand over all his money. They tied Scudder up. In the meantime, Wells and Hudgens panicked and tried to make a break for it. But they were forced to return to the chicken coop when they couldn't get the car started. Scudder tried to calm the terrified teens. Everything would be okay, he told them, once Brock and West realized there wasn't any money to be had. Brock and West ordered Joseph Odom out of the house. But before he could even stand, they shot him four times in the face. Then Brock turned and shot Scudder's two dogs that had been sleeping comfortably next to the wood stove. Brock returned to the pink room and led Scudder into the main living quarters. The doctor was horrified when he saw the bloody bodies laid out before him. Brock demanded that Scudder lead him to the money, but all the professor could do was sob at the sight of his dogs and his dead companion. Brock shot Scudder in the head five times. Brock and West were frustrated when they couldn't find any money, just like Scudder had said. They took what they could carry before splitting up and fleeing in Scudder and Odom's vehicles. The murder wouldn't be discovered until two days later when a friend stopped by Corpsewood Manor to notify them about a deceased acquaintance. Police didn't know what to make of the vast occult library and art collection. They also found Scudder's stash of LSD he'd stolen from the Chicago University where he'd once worked. The drugs and the satanic paraphernalia turned the murder into a media circus. Rumors began to swirl about the hedonistic orgies the men conducted at Corpsewood Manor. Wilder stories began to spread about child sexual abuse and satanic sacrifice, none of which was ever proven to be true. But a lack of facts in this conservative Georgia town didn't deter anyone. More than a few people began to openly express their opinion that the men actually deserved to die. Teresa Hudgens would soon go to the police and confess to everything she knew. By then, Brock and West were on the run. But they had chosen to take one of the least conspicuous getaway vehicles you can imagine. They headed out of town on Highway 20 in Scudder's Black Jeep, which was decorated with a pair of white pentagrams painted on each of the side doors. They pulled into a rest stop in Boniva, Mississippi to get some sleep, 
The following morning, they spotted Kirby Phelps, a Navy lieutenant, who had also pulled into the rest stop to sleep. West handcuffed Phelps and led him at gunpoint to a wooded area behind the rest stop. Brock was busy unloading the Jeep when he heard two gunshots echo in the distance. Although West claimed he had been planning on just handcuffing Phelps to a tree, he said the man swung at him, which caused him to panic and open fire. There are some who believe that, were it not for the murder of Kirby Phelps, it's possible a jury may have let Brock and West go free. Brock eventually turned himself into Georgia authorities on December 20th, 1982. West fled as far as Chattanooga, Tennessee, but he eventually gave himself up voluntarily as well. During Brock's confession to the police, he stated, All I can say is they were devils and I killed them. That's how I feel about it. Brock would go on to be sentenced to three consecutive life sentences, while West was sentenced to death. Looking back, it's easy to see how much paranoia and fear of the devil influence people's opinions on the murders. Today, Corpsewood Manor is a crumbling shell of what it had once been. Rumors persist that the area is haunted, although some darker rumors swear that it's the devil himself who stalks the woods. Logic dictates that Dr. Scudder and Joseph Odom were just a couple of eccentric individuals trying to live a quiet life all to themselves. All the satanic paraphernalia was just window dressing, and nothing more. There is something strange, though. Dr. Scudder's last words right before Brock shot him were, I asked for this. Which is a pretty odd thing to say at that time. That is, unless he saw it coming. As I mentioned, Dr. Scudder also had a pretty extensive and macabre art collection. A lot of the paintings were done by Scudder himself. One in particular has to make you stop and wonder just how far the devil's influence went in Corpsewood Manor. It's a self-portrait of Dr. Scudder, and in the painting, the doctor can be seen with a gag around his mouth and five bullet holes in his head. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to give shoutouts to a bunch of new Patreon supporters. Thank you to Douglas, Stacy, Todd, and Matt. It's generous patrons like you that help me bring new stories to you again and again. Patreon supporters get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in supporting the show, I'll put a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. Otherwise, I encourage you to visit Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. If you're not on Apple, you can still find us in lots of other places throughout the podverse, including Stitcher, Google Play, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. I also wanted to let you know about one more chance you can get to hear from yours truly. My friends Jerry and Tracy over at the awesome podcast Hillbilly Horror Stories are putting together a special Halloween episode this week. And if you listen close, you just might hear something new from the conspirators in there. Thanks again, and to all of you, happy Halloween! Happy Halloween!